picture this scene. You're currently sitting at home, watching TV. You flip around the channels, looking for something to watch. And then you see this ad. After working here for a few years... I knew it was time to move on. But I wasn't the only one trying to start their career. And everyone else was way more qualified. When I finally found a job I could get... Birthday, birthday, birthday! I was pretty much back where I started. Then I saw a commercial for Westwood College and decided to give them a call. At Westwood, I got my bachelor's degree in just three years. I got career training in the classroom and they helped me build my resume. You think, so when I graduated, hmm. I had and then you move on. Or you might think, hey, I'm stuck at home now, no thanks to the coronavirus, and a degree sounds like a good qualification to have. Why not apply? There's just one problem. That school you just heard about? That's Westwood College. It shut down in 2016. This is Illegal Tender Season 7. I'm Arti Swaminathan. A recent report by Brookings Institution found that for-profit colleges spend the most money on ads, even though they have the smallest share of students. The numbers are just so staggering. In 2017, public colleges spent $171,000 on advertising. Non-profit colleges spent $273,000 on advertising. For-profit colleges? They spent $1.25 million on ads. That's roughly $371 spent on ads per student, as compared to the $14 a public college spends on ads per student. The top spender is the University of Phoenix, whose ads I'm sure you have seen. But it's not just on TV. A separate report by Veterans Education Success found that this year, during this pandemic, for-profit colleges were pulling out the ads on social media as well. Between February and April, one specific school called ECPI University had increased the number of ads it had placed by 14,600%. To be honest with you, the idea that someone would attend a school based on an ad that they saw was just a little strange to me. But I guess that's my privilege. I grew up believing that if something was advertised, the buyer should beware. Growing up, I, you know, and actually it was funny in, in during the edit process when we actually, we had to go pull a lot of these ads over the years. I mean, like dating back to, you know, the early 2000s, I was like, oh my gosh, I remember watching this ad on Cartoon Network. I remember seeing this commercial on Nickelodeon. Like it, it was being advertised to me and probably, you know, the implication is probably, you know, they're a, a single parent, a parent is sitting there with their child while the child's watching TV because the parent is unemployed or is working part time and is, and then just sits there and, li- and listens to the commercial. And then that's, you know, that's their target market. That was Alex Shibnow, the film director whom we met in the previous episode. When I started covering these colleges, one person I interviewed told me plain and simple that these ads were just too good. And I have to say, I agree. Just listen to this ad I saw on TV a few weeks ago. These days, we've found smarter ways to do things. Find a smarter way to learn with FlexPath from Capella University. 
you might even earn your master's degree in 12 months for under $11,500. Capella University. Don't just learn, learn smarter. The reason I bring up these ads is because it's one of the things that just fascinates me about this particular industry. It has a profound understanding of human nature. People are told to believe in the value of education and that it's a path upwards to achieve the American dream. The only problem is that these for-profit colleges make money off of that belief. The tagline we use in the film Fail State is subprime goes to college. And basically what we saw in the home mortgage crisis a few years prior was being replicated in higher education at the, in the for-profit industry. And it was widespread and rampant. It wasn't, I think, where I differ from a lot of the more like, you know, friendly people towards for profits, you know, when they make their arguments is they say, oh, it's a few bad actors, it's a few bad apples. You know, all the research I was doing, it wasn't a few bad apples. It was the entire apple orchard was poisoned. I mean, it was it was hard to find a for profit that was of good value to the students. I mean, it was really difficult to find one. And it was, I was like, we need to find one because it can't just be all all this predatory, but it was very difficult. Alex's journey, much like mine, began the same way, with student debt. After a ton of research into this issue, he then realized that he was just scratching the surface. There was a much bigger problem at hand. This is June, 2014 and you know, up until that point, I'd known about for-profits, like I mentioned, and looking at student loan debt data, it was hard not to see the big elephant on the page. The, the default numbers were staggering when looking at, when you actually like separated it by different institutions. By default numbers, Alex is referring to the number of people taking out student loans, but not repaying them. The following year, a for-profit giant called Corinthian Colleges collapses. This is the same company that owns the school Jennifer from the previous episode attended. But when that happened for me as this third party observer to all of this, I was like, okay, what is the story here? What is going on? Because they, the best equivalent I have is something like a Lehman Brothers during the 2008 crash. When that when that company collapsed, it was like a big triggering moment and Corinthian collapsing this big multi-billion dollar a year company. I started researching it and that summer of 2014, I started pulling everything I could on, on for-profit colleges, David Halperin's book, Suzanne Mettler's book called Degrees of Inequality. And it was clear very quickly just how bad well, the stuff that was going on at for-profits was. I mean, it was, it was staggering. They figured out that there's this whole population of non-traditional students, older adults, parents, people who maybe went to work immediately after high school and they, they now want to go to college, but they, they have to work. They don't have the support structure in place to make them, allow them to go full-time to a college. Uh, maybe they're in a rural part of the, the country and so they can't commute to a college to be there in person. These for-profit colleges, they said, hey, we can actually create a non-traditional education model, make it online, rather than have traditional old world semester systems Let's have classes begin every two to three weeks. For-profit colleges like the University of Phoenix started building for-profit, they're in like actual branch campuses on freeways, like on the sides of freeways. So people could literally just, you know, as they're commuting back home, they can just drive off and take their night class and then go go back home. This, so this kind of, sorry, I yeah. just want to say this reminds me of DeVry because when I was driving to L.A., that was the big university that I saw oh, when yeah. I drove all, past, all, right? All the time. I mean, you... 
at, at the peak of it, you go to Arizona and I mean, there's, there's branches all over the place and they were creating different programs. That, so like, that's the credit to give them. It's like, they, they kind of like f- disrupted higher education. The problem though, is all the promises they were making, they were not actually fulfilling. It was all smoke and mirrors because and, and largely the, the blame that I give is more, a lot more towards how the federal financial aid system is because there are really no strong safeguards or oversight of federal financial aid dollars. As much as the for-profits and everyone complains about gameful employment and you know all this, re- this regulatory oversight, it's actually like pretty toothless in the grand scheme of things. It protects the most egregious abuses, but you can lay under the radar and abuse students for so many years and never get triggered for it. You would never have a red flag. And so the the simplest way to explain it is the incentives to do bad by students far outweigh the incentives to do good. And and that's where this whole system went haywire, where you saw, you know, institutions like Corinthian Colleges and ITD Tech, you know, egregiously doing a, a lot of different abuse practices. They were they had their own subprime student loan lending programs internally in the company. But this applied to other schools that didn't collapse. Um, they, you know, you would the Harkin investigation in 2012, you know, reported on all these record, recruiting abuses. I mean, there was, you know, schools that were recruiting directly out of homeless shelters and welfare offices. There were schools at, you know, Fast Train College. That's, you know, it's a shuttered college now, but in Florida, was using former exotic dancers to recruit students. They were driving around in low-income neighborhoods and trying to get men into the cars. And I remember that summer in the in the heavy research phase of it, there was a recent settlement by the Attorney General of Kentucky, Jack Conway. He's not uh, at the time. And he would let a whole group of attorney generals to, to basically take down this lead generation service that was led by a company called Quinn Street. And they were running website, this website called GIBill.com amongst a, nut, a, a swath of other lead generation websites. But GIBill.com was you know, a lead generation service. It was masquerading as a government website. It looked like it was run by the government. And it was like these like military seal of approvals. And it was nothing but just a ge- lead generation service for the for-profits. You would go in there, put your information in, say, I'm a you know, military, I'm a student veteran. I have these GI Bill benefits and the list of colleges that would come up were for profits. And one of the students that we interview in fail state fell victim to this type of lead generation practice. And I, it was that moment when I became really passionate about this issue. It, it was that moment when I realized, okay, this is the film that we need to make. This is the story that we need to make. And I think where we brought a unique perspective to this was rather than focusing wholly on the for-profit sector because for-profit colleges don't operate in a vacuum. You know, they're part of a larger higher education ecosystem. We had to kind of like place them within this broader, like compare them to the public colleges, compare them to the nonprofit privates uh, and show how for-profits, you know, have successfully, you know, they've successfully planted themselves in, in the higher education industry. Here's a question for you. When you think of a business, what comes to mind? A grocery store? A restaurant? How about a hospital? Should you run a hospital that actually turns a profit? Now think of education. Should you run a school 
that actually makes money? The, the problem is that there's a lot of baggage that people bring to the discussion, right, of for-profit. There's a lot of sort of anti-corporate and, and to, frankly, anti-capitalist, you know, baggage that they bring in there. This is Trace Erden. Trace is a managing director at Titan Partners based in San Francisco. Trace used to cover for-profit colleges as an analyst for a Wall Street bank. I found Trace on Twitter after seeing some of his very interesting replies to the people I followed. And I wanted to know, from his perspective, what he thought of the business of higher education. I first asked him about the bad apples. This is the frustration that, that exists in the, in the sector. So yes, there are definitely bad actors and good actors. There are some that are sort of cynical. There are some that are simply unsophisticated, right? There's a lot of these are family-run businesses, you know, and, and some of it is is structural, right? You get into the cosmetology space and it's incredibly complicated in cosmetology because we have all these state regulations that require students to, to receive an obscene amount of training in order to qualify for licensure to cut somebody's hair, right? So then you have to have schools that will perform, will do, will do all of that, will provide all of those hours of instruction for the students. And so, yeah, there are sort of for-profit schools that get into that sector. And a lot of the reasons people beat them up are less about how they operate and more about sort of the structural constraints of the system that they're operating in. So it's not to say, not to excuse bad behavior, but the very sim- simplified version of it's all about the for-profits and the non-profits and the for-profits are bad and the non-profits are good. It, it, if, if you know anything about you know, what's happening down in the, in the weeds here, it, that doesn't hold up at all. Trace's main argument made sense to me. Don't write off the entire sector because of one or two or a few bad apples. The entire apple orchard was not being poisoned. You know, in the early days of for-profit colleges as an investment category, it, it was understood that they were regulated, but there was a general understanding, and I don't know, maybe it was a conceit that there was strong bipartisan support for this category of schools in Congress. And the basis for that was basically like, well, on the Republican side, you had, you know, I don't know, sort of pro businesses, you know, pro public private partnerships, right? The Republicans kind of had a a stance in general that said, okay, the federal government can fund things, but we don't really want the federal government to do the things themselves. And so this is a great category. On the Democratic side of the aisle, it was much more about access, right? There was a sense of like traditional schools are ignoring giant constituencies that are important to us. They're basically ignoring adults. They're ignoring uh, minorities. They're ignoring people that are less affluent, that are trying to find some form of economic mobility. And these schools are doing that. And so we're supportive of them. And so investors had this general sense that, like, you know, Regulation was something you had to concern yourself with, but, you know, it was not the central feature. And the central feature for them was the fact that the free cash flow associated with this sector was was extremely attractive. And the, the reason for that is that these schools, like all of higher education, charge money up front, right? So you have to pay for the semester in advance of actually receiving the service for the semester. And that's true whether you're talking about University of Phoenix or you're talking about Harvard, right? These businesses grew and grew. And they also happened to serve non-traditional students. That seemed like a fair deal. So then investors, and here, 
Trace is talking about the big guys on Wall Street, not retail investors like you and me, got wind of these schools. They just threw off a ton of cash, and that's a characteristic, you know, sort of growth, high margins, strong free cash flow. These were all the things that made this category seem like a must-own category for institutional investors. And the, you know, the, the sort of the dark side of the sector was something that had kind of emerged in the, in the um, 80s and had been resolved by the kind of earlier incarnation of the Higher Education Act, like the time, you know, the place that the, the 9010 rule and all these things that get fought over today, you know, were instituted was in an effort to kind of crack down on bad practices that had existed in the past. By the 9010 rule, Trace is referring to a law that caps the percentage of revenue that a for-profit school can get from the federal government, which is at 90%. The remaining 10% of their revenue must come from other sources, but not the government. I think from the standpoint of investors, there was a sense that, oh, that was all behind us. You know, these regulations are sort of keeping everybody in line. And, you know, and so there was not a lot of, of consideration given to the regulatory side of the equation. And that, of course, changed. It changed pretty dramatically with the election of Barack Obama and a different sensibility that had always been lurking there, I think, on the progressive left, but it had not been part of the establishment democratic. It, it had not been a, a, a central plank of the democratic establishment, right? And so what you had was a more, you know, it was not an issue in the Clinton administration, um, just to sort of think about it. So you had a lot of like history of people who kind of remembered what things were like in the Clinton administration, and they knew that the a democratic president would be more hostile to the sector. They knew that there was going to be sort of a revisiting of some of the rules, but they completely underestimated how kind of aggressive that process was going to be. It sort of went from being this kind of sleepy backwater that people might have had an opinion about, but wasn't considered very important, to something that, you know, everybody kind of really wanted to zero in on. Throughout the process of reporting on this industry, I had heard from victims, from schools, and even from instructors within these schools. But there was one person I was just dying to speak to. The guy caught in the middle. The recruiter. I wanted to see what kind of pressures these companies were putting on them to perform. So I went looking for former admissions directors on LinkedIn. I must have sent like 20... 30 blind messages. One of them told me they doubted my credibility. I almost gave up. But then, I heard back from Jay. So currently, I am the direct hire division manager for a company called The Protocol Group, and I run a direct hire division recruitment firm. Basically, we help clients regionally and nationally fill any hard-to-fill or executive searches on the direct hire side of things. Jay is an interesting guy. He worked at not one but two for-profit colleges. Suffice to say, he has a lot to say about them. When I met you, I guess I had searched on LinkedIn and tried to find someone who worked at the Art Institute. Sure. So tell me, tell me a little bit about your work with for-profit colleges. There were two of them, but they were quite different, were they not? That's correct. So I started at the Art Institute of Philadelphia as an assistant director of admissions back in March of 2012. And that was my first experience working in for-profit recruitment. 
Uh, I like to consider myself kind of a, a sales person, but with a little bit more human factor in there. And uh, I joined the Art Institute of Philadelphia. I was wide-eyed. I didn't understand really how recruitment would funnel into education. You know, I was a little bit naive to that. And they had a great training program, got into for-profit education recruitment after I think the floor kind of fell out, which I believe was around 2010, 2011. So the industry had changed a lot. There was a lot of compliance. There was a lot of oversight. There was a lot of regulations. And there was a, a really thorough training process put in for new hires like myself. So we learned the do's and don'ts of what was compliant, what was appropriate to say, and what wasn't. And we had our calls were monitored. We had monthly check-ins where they would pull recordings of conversations that we had with students or parents making sure that we said the right things. There was about a 90-day training ramp-up period where we were audited, where we were sat in on, where they would go through with a fine-tuned comb again to make sure we were saying things that wouldn't put the industry and the school in a negative light. And you know, as I told you before, I was, I was pretty fortunate and thankful for that training. To this day, throughout all the different companies I've been to, I look back and, and talk to friends of mine or past colleagues at you know, the Art Institute, they were doing things right in terms of training individuals. And that I'm very fortunate for. And after training, I started, there was four main quarter starts, which were seasonal and then mid-quarter starts. And we had student quotas that we had to hit. There was certain metrics based upon the strength of your recruitment or your tenure that you had a certain amount of enrollments you had to hit. And nothing was really on the, nothing was really, nothing struck me as being wrong or incorrect over there. You mentioned, as I told you before, that I did join a different organization halfway through my tenure at the Art Institute. So kind of walking you through that, after about a year, year and a half, I was wanting more. I wanted to grow and I wasn't really met with those opportunities at the Art Institute sans relocation. And I didn't want to do that. So I ended up taking a position as senior director of admissions at a school called the Harris School of Business. And they were also a for-profit school. And my experience was night and day. Kind of talking about some of the differences between the two, Art Institute was really focused on long-term enrollments, students that were either atypical students, meaning they were non-traditional, so somebody that maybe started school, stopped and wanted to come back, or transfer students, adult students, and they also focused on students right out of high school because they had statistics showed that there was longer completion ratings, there was a little bit more focus on the four to five year student because you know the, the statistics showed that they were going to be staying in the program, and that's what we wanted ultimately. Uh, Harris School of Business was really focused on body counts, getting people in that didn't have financial aid that was rendered already because they could use their financial aid access for nine months, 12 month programs, get them a certificate. They promised them the world as far as internships and externships, and they really weren't able to produce on that. It didn't matter where the individual came from, didn't necessarily matter if the program was going to benefit them in the long term. They looked at it and said, we need 50 students for April, and we need 50 names on a sheet. We need 50 people that can draw financial aid. doesn't matter of their economic backgrounds or really much. You know, I'm trying to trying to be delicate in my wording here, but it was definitely a different experience fully between Harris School of Business and my experience at Art Institute, which both are still categorized under for-profit education. Jane's point was important. Not all for-profit schools are the same. 
The art institute he worked at was definitely not the same as Fastrain or Harris. There are some that follow the rules and look out for their students. Yet, they were all treated the same, or at least seen to be the same. My company's corporate office now is in the same complex as Harris School. So even when I went to go interview with Protocol, I walked in the front door and I saw Harris just staring at me. And I remember that feeling like, oh, geez, Harris, like what, what, a, what a horrible experience. Now I can kind of tongue-in-cheek walk by Harris and kind of laugh at my experiences. My president and owner of Protocol, even during the interview process, kind of talked about my experience with Harris because they knew from being in the same building with them for however many years that they had a certain reputation. And they also looked at Harris a little bit negatively as well. So kind of uh, their reputation transitioned into other business lines that people kind of knew what they were about and kind of looked down on them as well. But yeah, I mean, certainly interesting that it still had that pit in the stomach feeling. The entire thing then boiled down to business practices. Just like how some businesses choose to do illegal things, some of these schools are so eager to go that extra but illegal mile. Bob Scheiman of the Century Foundation, whom you'll meet in episode four, put it this way. When you are just a business person and you are focused on what thing? What are the things that we can do to get more students to enroll and to increase the margin between what people are paying and what we're spending on the education? If that's what's driving your daily decisions, you will end up being a predatory school because you can make a lot of money by enrolling vulnerable people who don't really realize what they're getting into, who are borrowing a lot of money for college, and who are enrolled in classes taught by people who are not paid enough for what they're being asked to do. That's how you make a lot of money in higher education. It's not illegal to do that. It's just a horrible value. And you know, you may end up crossing the line and doing some illegal things, but everyday business people will be will be driven in that direction by following the the normal signals of business. They will think that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. To a person on the front lines like Jay, this pressure to meet his quotas was something he felt across industries. There was nothing exceptionally wrong with the way these schools recruited. It doesn't matter if they're for-profit, doesn't matter if they're doing sales, banking. The best recruiters that I know are people. As an individual, they're a people person. They know how to relate to people. It is kind of a sales position being in recruitment. And I learned that very quickly even being at the Art Institute because I was talking to students. I was talking to their buying party, which were their parents. And I was talking to them about their hopes and dreams and what they're trying to accomplish in their degree section selection process and their school selection process, which is, you know, second to buying a home, kind of one of the biggest investments that you're going to be making, whether it's a, you know, $20,000 yearly tuition, $100,000 program admission, you had to figure out if it's going to be a good fit for them. So there's metrics, there's quotas at the Art Institute. Yeah, it was branded as for-profit, but isn't all education kind of for-profit? It doesn't matter if you're at Temple or Drexel or St. Joe's, they all have enrollment numbers that they need to hit in order to keep their class census where it needs to be, in order to keep their professors happy, in order to keep revenue streams coming in. But even G drew a line when these schools pushed the envelope a little too much. So trying to put that in a light as to what Harris was doing as far as metrics, Harris didn't care about that people factor. They didn't care if it was a good fit. So you felt those pressures of them saying, hey, why is the number or our headcount down? Why is our enrollment down? And they never accepted or wanted to have conversations about 
John Smith or Jane Doe not being a good fit or not wanting to enroll into a medical assistant program where you're going to be making $11 an hour because they have two kids at home, because they can't work second or third shift. They didn't care about that. They wanted to know why aren't they signing up. And that was their expectation that if somebody walked into the door for an appointment, that was going to be an enrollment for class. They looked at it that, that simply. And that didn't jive with me. That wasn't something that I felt comfortable with. That wasn't something that I wanted to cement my brand or, you know, tote the company flag and, and bear that as a representation of who I am and what I wanted to do. So they were much different than all of my experiences to date when it came to recruitment. You know, what happened in a situation like that when, imagine, I cannot imagine working there, I will obviously fail to meet their quotas. What would happen to me? Interesting question. So if, if and when at that time, you know, I can only speak to when I was there in 2013, if they hired you and brought you on board, they gave you a binder of probably about 120 pages for you to read with scripts. There was no training. There was no structure as far as you have to be able to crawl before you can walk. You have to walk before you can run. It was, here's your book. We'll give you two or three days to make sure you're familiarizing yourself with the scripts. This is our process through A through Z, and these are our expectations. And by week two, they expected that you were going to be up and running, that you were going to be able to, to hit enrollment and maybe generate two enrollments in your first week and then four a week there on after. And if you weren't able to hit that, realistically, soup to nuts, beginning, you know, you start on day one, you probably had about three weeks to get traction before they would end up um, letting you go and then trying to bring in another recruiter. So it was a constant revolving door of their recruiters. And they would really, probably most offices had about three or four recruiters working under the SDOA, which is Senior Director of Admissions. So they would try to keep the SDOA in place to try to steer the ship and run in the ship manage the coal underneath of it, put the sails up, and then hopefully get a couple oarmen to come on board and, and keep on pedaling. And sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not, but they're a pretty revolving door of recruiters over there. So if, if you didn't make the cut at Harris, it was just off to the next one. Whereas the Art Institute or some of the other organizations I've worked for, they had training in place. They wanted to make sure that you can crawl before you walked and then walk before you ran. They wanted to make sure that if you were experiencing difficulties or if you were struggling, they focused on why you were struggling and tried to fix that. You know, they would look at appointment show rates. They would look at conversions of those appointment shows. And maybe it's as simple as, you know, you didn't have a good phone voice. You weren't relating with the people on the phone enough. So we wanted to fix that. We'd pull some calls. We'd focus on that. We would do trainings on that. And the same thing in the mortgage industry and the same thing to this day. We're here to help our employees grow. We want them to grow. We're investing in our employees to get better. And Harris didn't look at it like that. In the next episode of Illegal Tender, we'll go into the one school that has become the poster child of failed for-profit colleges. Maybe you've heard of it, Trump University. Legal Tender is made by Yahoo Finance at our studios and homes in New York City. This episode was written and hosted by me, Arti Swaminathan. Illegal Tender was created, edited, and produced by Alex Sugg. Special thanks to David Halperin, Matt Wood, Jen Wilson, and Alex Shibanow 
as well as everyone else who I haven't mentioned, for sharing your knowledge. If you enjoyed this podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a 5-star rating and review it for the show. Until next time, thank you for listening to Illegal Tender.